0: Thank you for attending tonight, comrades, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is June 6, 2023, and I want to thank you all for being here. Our class tonight is going to be a class on American imperialism, second front. Today, Russia. Tomorrow, China. So we're going to be talking about all the American imperial aggression against China and a bit of history of what they've had to deal with over the past century to give us some context on what they think about what we're doing now. Tonight's class, as I said, is gonna be on American imperialism second
1: front. Today, Russia, tomorrow, China. Okay, so what we're gonna be learning today, a brief history of China's struggle against Japanese and Western imperialism. A brief summarization of the Chinese civil war as a prelude to this issue over the island of Taiwan. About the American aggression towards China, and a present built-up to a war with the PRC, People's Republic of China. China, currently the People's Republic of China, the PRC, is a nation in East Asia on the western rim of the Pacific, which has existed as a PRC since 1949. But the area itself had previously seen thousands of years of feudal states under several dynasties. Today, a 1,450,000,000 people live in the PRC, making it the most populated country in the world. China's largest city is Shanghai, with 25 million people. The capital is Beijing. China borders Korea, that would be North Korea, by the way, Vietnam, Laos, Myanmar, India, Bhutan, Nepal, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, the Russian Federation, Mongolia, the East China Sea, the South China Sea, and the Pacific Ocean, the most of any country, crossing five time zones.
0: We also just have some pictures showing you the different regions. Um, of China and some maps to help understand this uh, as we go forward. Then we have the
1: first section, the historical background. At the turn of the 17th century, China was among the world's biggest economies. It's estimated that a third of the world's silver wound up in the hands of the Chinese. The British devised a strategy to recover the huge trade deficit there and had come about ways of turning this drug opium that previously in the sixth or seventh century was used by Turkish traders as an oral remedy for pain or a tool of assassination, was now converted into Shandu for smoking. It was sold to private merchants through the East India Company due to a ban passed by Emperor Yongzheng which was a prohibition of consumption and for junking, prohibited the sale and importation. The new product reached respectively 2,000 chests in 1793, 10,000 chests in 1820, and 40,000 chests in 1838, leading to the famous seizure of 1,400 tons of drugs in Canton. This led to the development to the 1838 of the Canton raids and subsequent war. This was the century of humiliation for China. By the way, every kid in China, when they go to school, they learn about the hundred years of humiliation. It's a major point in uh, Chinese consciousness. The awakening, the much weakened Chinese nation had been opened up to unlimited exploitation as we enter the 1890s. The Boxer Rebellion in 1900 was an uprising against Western, Russian, and Japanese imperialism, and saw so the United States intervene militarily against China for the first major time, just as U.S. imperialism was taking off. The mounting discontent against the foreigners spawned the first Guangzhou uprising led by Zheng Shiling and Sun Yat-sen, very important name, remember, which was smashed by the leaks of membership records to the Qing authorities. That's a dynasty, the Qing dynasty. While in exile, Sun Yat-sen formulated the three popular principles under the then common union. The Chinese took great inspiration from the action of the Russians writing in the publication of The People. Quote, the revolutionary storm in Russia shook the world like a mighty peal of thunder. Now the whole world knows the strengths of the Russian Socialist Party. Russia can show us the way in our own revolution. Okay, now a big question. Taiwan or Formosa? Taiwan is an island in the western pacific ocean about the size of the U.S. state of Maryland. It sits 81 miles southeast of China and 160 miles north of the Philippines. To the northeast is Japan, to the southwest is Vietnam. Taiwan is about halfway between the two countries. Around 1540, Portuguese explorers sailed by Taiwan, and they were struck by its beauty, and they named it Formosa, meaning beautiful. Officially, Chinese gave the island its name of Taiwan around 1680. Through the centuries, both names were used, but Formosa was a primary name used until the late 60s, 1960s. After 1895, Taiwan became a colony of the Japanese empire that lasted for 50 years until 1945, when Japan was defeated in World War II. The history of Taiwan in the 20th century is intrinsically linked to the history of the Chinese Revolution. The first Chinese revolutionary civil war The first Chinese Revolutionary Civil War began in 1921 when the just-founded Communist Party of China, CPC, began to fight against the feudal warlords side-by-side with the Kuomintang, the KMT, a bourgeois democratic-type party. In 1927, the KMT split into a left-leaning wing friendly to the CPC and an anti-communist wing led by Chiang Kai-shek. The right wing of the KMT took over and proceeded to slaughter communists in Shanghai. And so ended the first revolutionary civil war. Mao Zedong came up with a brilliant idea of withdrawing to the countryside where the CPC was strong, forming a peasant-based revolutionary army and establishing Soviet bases in remote areas of China. The second Chinese revolutionary civil war and the Japanese invasion. Thus began the second revolutionary civil war. It lasted 10 years from 1927 to 37 and culminated in 1934-35 with a long march when two Chinese Red Armies embarked on a 12,500 kilometers journey towards the northwest of China by Mongolia and the USSR. To this day, the Long March remains one of the most daring military feats in history. In 1937, imperialist Japan invaded China on a full scale Decision was made by the CPC in accordance with the Comintern and its anti-fascist Popular Front policy to ally with the KMT and Shanghai Czech. The Second Revolutionary Civil War ended and the War of Resistance to Japanese Aggression began. It lasted eight years, from 1937 to 1945, when Japan was defeated by the U.S. in alliance with the USSR. Now, the KMT and the PLA during and after World War II. Japan surrendered on September 2nd, 1945. Under the Treaty of Surrender, provision was made for the return of Taiwan to the legal government of China, which at the time was the Republic of China, the ROC, led by the Kuomintang and Kai-shek. After the liberation of China from the Japanese yoke, Following the advice of Stalin, Mao Zedong attempted peace with the KMT, but it proved impossible. During the entire imperialist war, the Chinese Red Army, there were two Chinese Red Armies, the 4th Army and the 8th Army, now called the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, had grown into a formidable force controlling huge swaths of China, The Soviet Red Army provided the PLA with all the weapons it had taken from the Japanese Imperial Army. In the meantime, the U.S. Truman administration proceeded frantically to arm the Kuomintang. Now the Third Chinese uh, Revolutionary Civil War. The Third Revolutionary Civil War officially began in July 1946, Less than a year after Japan's surrender, the PLA, backed by 500 million Chinese peasants and workers, went from victory to victory, and they vanquished the KMT by the fall of 1949. The People's Republic of China was proclaimed on October 1st, 1949, and all Chiang Kai-shek was left with was Taiwan and Tibet plus a few small pockets of China.
0: All right. And with that, we'll stop our first round of questions and comments.
1: I just wanted to make a little mention that uh, during World War II, when the
2: United States was fighting uh, the Japanese, General Stilwell sent a
1: telegram to President Roosevelt and told him, please stop sending arms to Chiang Kai-shek. He's doing nothing but storing these weapons for uh, after the war. The fight against the communists. Uh, Mao Zedong is uh, helping us and supporting us in the war. Please uh, send our arms to Mao Zedong. And of course, everything changed after Roosevelt
2: died and Truman became president, 180 degrees.
1: That's very true, comrade. You know, Chiang Kai-shek was a bad ally. He used to say, Japanese is a disease of the skin and communist is a disease of the soul.
0: All right. Thank you, comrades. Hey, thank you for the class. I'm just curious what happened where the name was changed from Formosa to Taiwan and who proposed it and why? Thank you.
1: Well, you know, um, I can remember when I was growing up, you know, in the 60s and 70s, you never, ever heard the name Taiwan. All you heard is Formosa. And then let's say um, 71 is when The PRC was recognized at the United Nations. And then 72 is when uh, Nixon went to China. Okay. Starting about that time, you started to hear more of the name Taiwan and less the name Formosa. But basically, until until the mid to late 70s, you know, it was still kind of Formosa, you know. And after that, for sure, just Taiwan.
0: All right. Thank you, comrade.
1: I want to
3: mention that uh, most people don't remember. That the revolution in 49, many people were involved with the leadership of the party, including Lu Xiaoxi, Zhou Enlai, Wang Ming, which nobody ever talks about Wang Ming anymore. It's fascinating. And Mao Zedong, among some of the others. Others have been forgotten that they also led. It was a collective thing. It wasn't led by one man. It was collective, led by the party. Thank you.
0: All right. Thank you, comrade.
4: Yeah, I just wanted to make a quick mention for, again, more more people in the future and less on us, that um, after their basic defeat, the Kuomintang went to Taiwan and uh, generally killed all the natives there. I just want to remind everybody that not many people talk about that. That's it. Thank you.
5: Thank you, comrade. Okay, I just wanted to draw a parallel of the British importation of opium into China and the US introduction of crack cocaine into inner city neighborhoods in the 1980s. It seems the imperialists use this tactic a lot and it's just something interesting to point out. Thank you. All right, thank you for that, comrade.
4: Thank you comrades. So first of all, I just wanted to make a mention that not very many people know this unless you've read his works written by um, Ho Chi Minh. Who then before was known as Nguyen I Quoc. That was his pseudonym he went under. He was also instrumental with the communists in uh, Canton. And a lot of what happened in World War II with China was preludes to Indochina or Vietnam and Ho's reentry. During World War II, he even was being supported by the Roosevelt administration to fight against the Japanese in Vietnam to help recover. By the way, a lot of fighter pilots that went down over into the Vietnam area like the st- steel well and all those guys number two is just to shed some light and make a parallel comparison how serious and why china believes and has reason to name taiwan a hostile rogue province number one what the u.s imperialism is doing in taiwan is they are arming them it's like a springboard is what it is for aggression against china very easily. It's only like 89 miles off the mainland coast. Basically, if a foreign country was to take Catalina, which is not very far off the coast of California, the mainland, that's like if, in reverse, if China or Russia did that, there aren't enough people who lived on that and they wanted to form their own like breakaway. That would be hostile. That's essentially what is going on with Taiwan and why China is not taking that peacefully and Russia have not done anything like that. It's mm. the U.S. imperialists that are doing that.
0: All right. Thank you, comrade.
6: Is it uh, true that uh, Stalin like, didn't think that Mao could win the civil war and that he should form a coalition government
1: with Chiang Kai-shek after World War II? On the first revolutionary civil war, you have to remember from 21 to 27 that uh, the Communist Party of China was allied with the Kuomintang. The Kuomintang wasn't so bad. It was like a progressive, you know, from the time of Sun Yat-sen, the father of the Kuomintang. Also, he's the father of the Chinese nation, according to the Communist Party, okay? So, but things changed, you know, in 27, when uh, Chiang Kai-shek took over. Chiang Kai-shek was a right wing, the fascist wing of the Kuomintang. But then, okay, you got the 10 years, 27 to 37, Okay, 37, you got the Japanese aggression. So yeah, Mao Zedong had to ally with uh, Chiang Kai-shek, the Kuomintang. He had to. There was a popular front type situation. Okay, And then after that, you're right, um, Mao Zedong did not trust the Kuomintang after 45, but they tried. Stalin kind of wanted him to do an alliance after the end of the war. Uh, Mao Zedong tried, but you know, Chiang Kai-shek was so anti-communist, it was in his DNA, So it didn't work. And then uh, Stalin went along with that, of course, and he gave all the weapons to the Communist Party, not to the Kuomintang. Thank you, comrade.
7: Why was it important for the policy uh, for communists not to critique the KMT? Uh, Were they united or something against a specific thing that was maybe an imperialist power in the area? In what year? I think it was shortly before and shortly after nineteen forty-five, uh, Chiang Kai-shek's uh, takeover of the KMT.
1: Okay, uh, Chiang Kai-shek took over the KMT in twenty-seven. Before that, they were Sorry. okay. To, okay, during the the Japanese anti-Japanese war of uh, resistance, Chiang Kai-shek was a bad ally. Like I said earlier, you know, he was stabbing communists in the back. He was more worried about fighting communists and fighting Japanese. Uh, officially, he was allied with Mao Zedong and the Communist Party, but uh, a lot of times, you know, there would be traitors. Okay, and Mao Zedong knew that, of course. But in '45, he still tried. It was legitimate to try. Stalin was right, but it didn't work. It didn't take long, less than a year, and bang, the last civil war, which
0: we won. All right, thank you, comrade.
1: The Kuomintang,
8: after they retreated to Taiwan, they put martial law upon Taiwan, and they, that led to a period called the White Terror, during which many people were persecuted underneath the guise of anti-communism. And I believe the T is currently still the main party that is under rule in Taiwan, and that's the party that is working with the US.
1: Actually, comrade, you're right about the White Terror and all that 100%, but you know there is a twist of, of history here. Is Right now, the Kuomintang in Taiwan is kind of progressive. They are for peaceful reunification with, um, with China. OK, but the party in power, you know, that lady named uh, Tsai Ing-wen, you know, she just went to the U.S. last month, remember? OK, so she's a hardcore pro-independence. She's the opposite of the Kuomintang. So actually, Kuomintang right now is our ally in Taiwan as far as a peaceful reunification without a major war. All right. Thank you, comrades.
2: Right now, at this time in history, uh, the role of uh, the rise of Russia uh, is progressive from the standpoint of the un- uh, global anti imperialist struggle, and it's manifesting itself by uh, through resistance All over uh, the planet in Africa, Asia, Latin America, they are uh, more favorable to the policies of China, Russia, uh, and the so called BRICS countries. So I think, which is very ironically, that the Western bourgeoisie, you know, European and North American, they are trying to show their nationalists in favor of uh, uh, the Ukrainian uh, uh, resistance against the so called Russian. Aggression or invasion. I think, uh, although they can have some issues along those lines about Russia invading a sovereign nation, I think the security concerns of uh, Russia are uh, are legitimate, and the role of Russia right now globally is progressive and uh, revolutionary. So, what what do our members say about that? Yes,
1: yeah, sure, comrade. You're absolutely right, and. Uh... I really believe that uh, we could compare the situation of Ukraine to the situation of Taiwan. And uh, we've been saying for a while that um, Taiwan is Chinese for Ukraine, it's very true. Uh, We can say that uh, US, uh, NATO, EU imperialism have used uh, Ukraine as a springboard against Russia, right? And guess what? They're doing exactly the same with Taiwan against China. So there we go, it is, you're right. All right, thank you, comrade.
9: Yeah, uh, the Chinese Revolutionary Wars in the history is, to me, very interesting. And it's very romantic in a way, just like the time of the Russian Revolution. I don't know if, if someone can, I have, I'll have two questions, but can someone uh, explain, because we mentioned the strategies of the Chinese party. From what I understand, they call it like the warlord era, where Different, China was not unified. It was just different little countries. And uh, certain guys went certain ways, like they would go with like Chiang Kai-shek and like the British and Americans. The, there was another guy who was like a, a horseman. He was like kind of like a folk hero. He joined the communists. Uh, that's my first question. What can someone describe briefly that era? And then second, uh, who was Liu Xiaoxi? Because uh, I know we, we talk a lot about Liu Xiaoxi. I think he was active at the time as well.
1: Yes, comrade. Uh, As far as the first revolutionary civil war, it's very interesting, because uh, the Kuomintang at the time was progressive until the summer of 1927, when Chiang Kai-shek took over. Chiang Kai-shek was the anti-communist. He was the uh, uh, fascist type, okay, of of the bourgeoisie of China. But uh, the other wing, the left wing, was friendly to communists, Uh, to the Communist Party. And the founder, Sun Yat-sen, of the Kuomintang, he he was um, uh, very close to Lenin. He never met him, but he was close in... uh, He always talked about him, and so did Lenin as well. Okay, So at the time when they fought those warlords, between uh, 21 to, let's say, uh, 27, it was uh, progressive. And yeah, they were fighting against a remnant of uh, feudalism because in 1911, 1912, uh, Sun Yat-sen, the father of the Chinese nation overthrew feudalism after what, 5,000 years of emperors, 5,000 years. He got rid of it, okay? Uh, But between 1912 to 1927, it was uh, the warlord's era after a while, you know? So that's what happened.
7: All right, thank you, comrade. Yeah, I
3: just want to take a moment to uh, say something about, like, the format of the class, how it's set up. It's a lot easier to understand
7: than, like, uh, let's say, in an actual classroom.
10: And um, I've really learned a lot from this. Thank you.
0: All right. Thank you, comrade.
3: Uh, Thank you. So I recall reading an article some time ago about Shanghai and there was somewhat of a workers uprising there that was something akin to kind of like China's Paris commune and I can't remember enough about the um, article to really speak on it but I'm just wondering does this ring any bells for anybody else who might know anything about what I'm talking about or be able to comment on it, because I think it was important in China's history. Um, If anybody can comment on what I'm trying to get at about the sort of workers' commune in uh, Shanghai, I would appreciate it.
1: Yes, comrade, you are very right. And uh, that uprising of the workers' commune of Shanghai was in the summer of 1927, and that is just the time that already Chiang Kai-shek had taken over the Kuomintang. And uh, he did because he's an anti, he was an anti-communist, a fascist type uh, of the bourgeois class. And yes, he, he led the massacre of thousands of communists, just like the commune, not much different. And that's after that, that uh, it was a rupture between Kuomintang and the Communist Party. And that's when Mao Zedong has his genius idea to go to the countryside because it was strong there and encircled the cities. And it did, and it worked. All right, thank you, comrade. Comrade General Secretary,
0: Angela from New York, you have the floor.
3: Yeah, I hope you can hear me. What I'm going to say now is very interesting. Some people may disagree, but we need to have a school on this subject matter. It's some of our opinions that that, change in direction was not so genius the way some comrades claim it is, that it was in effect a taking a road away from Marxian centrality of the working class. Marx said that the working class will lead the revolution and that the farmers will be their allies. But what happened in China was actually the opposite. The peasants led the revolution, remember that. And the working class was their allies. So we have to understand that and not gloss over it. I think we need to have a discussion in a school on this. I feel strongly that that led to why the Chinese flag has the symbols it has on it of the five stars and why the bourgeoisie in China what they called the Native ones, not the Comprador capitalist. why they had a whole different relationship to that revolution than they did in Russia or Poland or East Germany or any of the countries. And Cuba, remember, did follow peasants. But look what happened in Cuba. Who did they put in power? The trade unions, the working class. It's just something to think about. And that's why there was a division in China between Wang Ming, Lu Xiaoxi, and others. I'm not going to start a debate here tonight. I just want you to keep it in your mind that we should have a class on this. Thank you.
1: I want to add that the proletariat was 2 million strong at the time in a country of 550 million, just to keep everything in proportion.
0: Right. Thank you, comrades. And I definitely think that the ins and outs of the Chinese Revolution is definitely a class that we will have in the future, being that it was such a, a big event in history, and it's something that we as Marxist-Leninists do need to analyze. Uh, but this class tonight is mainly focused on the U.S. imperial aggression to China and historical background information is just context to add to the issues over Taiwan and other areas?
11: Uh, yeah, I just wanted to bring up, you know, there's, uh, you know, particularly the ultra left that always points to, uh, you know, the, the CPC working with Kuomintang, I mean, before uh, Chiang Kai-shek. But what they don't understand, uh, I, and I implore people to read On New Democracy by Mao Zedong, in that he has this uh, thesis uh, that at the imperialist phase of, uh, of the world, there's two types of bourgeois you know, camps. There's uh, ones that capitulate to the imperialists, and then there's the ones that oppose imperialism. Uh, he stated that uh, those bourgeois liberation uh, revolutions, that opposed the big imperialists, were actually working in favor of a proletarian world revolution. He said that because in an imperialist phase, the imperialist powers would never allow a new capitalist competitor that wasn't under their uh, umbrella of imperialism. So. I I do recommend that uh, pamphlet by Mao. It's
1: called On Democracy." So I just wanted to say that. I want to add also that um, China at the time was a semi-feudal, semi-colonial country. It was a little bit different, quite a bit from Russia in that regard. So that explains also what you just said, comrade.
0: All right. Thank you, comrade.
12: Yeah, it's uh, kind of along the lines of what Comrade was saying um, with the new democracy idea. You know, the revolution was first and foremost about national liberation. So my question is, it was said that the KMT, Neil, represent the international bourgeoisie. So at the time, was the national bourgeoisie, say at the Third Revolutionary War, was the national bourgeoisie and the petty bourgeoisie generally on the side of the PLA or the KMT?
1: the question. the good question. I think that, um, you know, what what we call the comprador bourgeoisie, right? It it was really behind uh, Chiang Kai-shek, you know, and um, the national more patriotic type bourgeoisie was behind the PLA, although it could have been split too, you know. But one thing for sure, after all these three revolutionary civil war and the Japanese War of Aggression, the Communist Party was super powerful. Its membership was incredible. Like, I think 8 million people. 8 million in 1949. Something like that, you know. Its military was super strong. They had two armies, but they made it into one. It was incredibly strong. So they had to win, you know. All right. Thank you, comrade.
4: Yeah, hi, thanks. Um, so... From what I understand, like after the, the KMT lost, they went they went to Taiwan, right? And became the sort of the, the ruling party that's still still in power. So is that why like I always feel like Taiwan is sort of like a pseudo-US colony in, in a way? I don't know if that's t- totally true, but like has the US been backing Taiwan and that ruling party like ever since? Is that why the relationships are like relations are so tight? And I also know like the CIA wasn't involved in uh in Tibet, and I'm just wondering if anyone has more details on that and can can explain that, or if we're gonna get into that in the next section, thanks.
1: Okay, comrade, you know about Taiwan and the Kuomintang, you're right, they went to uh, Taiwan in 1949. They stayed there. The Kuomintang ruled for so many tens of years, right? Uh, But you know, in an interesting twist of history, it's kind of ironic, but lately, the Kuomintang is progressive in Taiwan. And they are in favor of a peaceful reunification with the People's Republic of China, which is what Xi Jinping is trying to accomplish, right? Without a war, okay? On the other hand, that lady named um, Tsai Tsai wang okay? She uh, is trying to lead the country into independence, which is the mother of all red lines. If she proclaimed independence, 24 hours later, you know the PLA will invade. All right, thank
0: you. And I also just want to add to that that Syngwin is from a different party than the Kuomintang, so that's just important to know as we go and we look at that current situation. I forget the name of it, but if somebody can, uh, if somebody knows that and can put it in the chat, assist the comrades, that would be uh, pretty good. It's
1: so, a uh, democratic progressive party, PDP or PP. Something like, sorry, it's pretty close.
0: <laughs> All right, comrade, thank you. So now we'll go on the historical background, uh, 1949 to 2010. Uh, most of this is just going to go up to about 1979, but we put it like that because the last section is going to be the more recent stuff since around 2010.
1: What happened after forty-nine? Okay, so the Kuomintang flees to Taiwan. By December 1949, the Kuomintang had withdrawn its forces to the island of Taiwan, around half a million soldiers, followed by two million civilians. Beginning in 1950, the PLA prepared for its final battle against the Kuomintang stronghold of Taiwan. The PLA had no navy in 1950, only sailing ships called junks, very good ships, by the way. It had thousands of junks that would cross the Taiwan Strait and carry the troops to liberate the island. 1950 was a year of extreme tensions in Southeast Asia. In the Northeast, on the Korean Peninsula, the newly created Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the DPRK, was facing a puppet regime armed to the teeth by the US. In the Southwest, war was raging between French colonialism and the Democratic Republic of Vietnam led by the Viet Minh, whose uh, leader was Ho Chi Minh. The USSR and the PRC supported revolutionary Vietnam. The US supported colonialist France. In June 1950, the war broke out in Korea between the DPRK and the Southern Puppet regime. The U.S. immediately hurled its forces against the DPRK, together with other imperialist states, notably the U.K., Canada, and Australia. At the very same time, Truman sent the U.S. 7th fleet to the Taiwan Strait to block the PLA's planned liberation of the island. There is nothing the PLA's junks could have done against American aircraft carriers, battleships, and fighter jets. The PRC found itself facing the three daggers of U.S. imperialism. To its head, with Korea. To its belly, with Taiwan. To its feet, with Vietnam. The Korean War. In October 50, Merely one year after the revolution's victory, Mao Tse-tung sent 300,000 PLA soldiers across the Yalu River into North Korea, responding to the request of Stalin and Kim Il-sung to come to the rescue of the Korean People's Army that was battling alone the superior war machine of U.S. imperialism. By the way, those troops were called the People's Volunteer Army. They didn't use the PLAs officially, okay? The Korean War, known in the DPRK as the Fatherland Liberation War, lasted until July 1953, when an armistice was signed, not a peace treaty. The Taiwan Strait Crisis. Armed confrontations erupted between the PLA and the KMT's Nationalist Army in 54-55 known as the first Taiwan Strait crisis. Then again, three years later, in August 1958, during the second Taiwan Strait crisis, a much more serious one, where even the use of nuclear weapons was put on the table by the infamous evil American warmonger John Foster Dulles. US imperialism, began to supply the KMT regime with advanced weapons and Khrushchev warned Eisenhower against starting World War III. The events of 1958 as the Formosa crisis were the last major military clashes to be recorded between the PRC and the nationalist regime. Then 13 years later in 1971, The PRC scored a decisive victory on the political and diplomatic front. For the first time since the revolution, it was recognized by the United Nations as the sole legal representative of China. Chiang Kai-shek's regime was expelled from the United Nations. The question of the UN with two Chinese governments, it must be noted that ever since its creation after World War II, the United Nations has a Security Council whose mission is to ensure international peace and security. The UNSC is composed of 15 members, five of which are permanent, the US, the UK, France, the USSR, after 91 was Russia, and China the five victors of World War II. Naturally, from its founding in 1945 until October 1st, 1949, that is, during the Third Revolutionary Civil War, the Republic of China, led by the KMT, was the representative of China. After the proclamation of the People's Republic of China and the flight of the KMT to the island of Taiwan, there were two Chinese governments, One government controlled 13,000 square miles of Chinese territory and 8 million Chinese people. The other government controlled 3.7 million square miles of Chinese territory and 552 million Chinese people. According to the UN, a government that controlled 99.99% of the country's surface and 99.98% of its population was not allowed to represent that country in an international body concerned with peace and security of the entire planet. It was utter absurdity. For that reason, in January, 1950, Stalin decided to boycott the UN Security Council when it refused to recognize the PRC and give it a seat as permanent member instead of the ROC. From now on, the USSR would no longer participate to the deliberations of the UNSC, as long as the Chinese nationalists were not unseated. But in June 1950, the USSR was tricked. The UNSC voted for sending troops to Korea, and the USSR was not present to block the resolution by using its absolute veto power. Therefore, an illegal multinational military intervention in Korea was launched under UN mandate. In August 1950, the USSR returned to the UN Security Council. In 1971, the United Nations recognized the People's Republic of China and expelled the ROC. The one China policy was established officially. This was all happening in the middle of a major Chinese Soviet rift that began about 10 years earlier, mostly after the 22nd Congress of the CPSU in 1961 and after the Chinese-Indian War of 1962. None of this was lost on the US State Department in the late 60s, especially on Henry Kissinger, Nixon's right hand. The Chinese-Soviet split is one of the main reasons that pushed Kissinger to normalize relations with the PRC in order to drive a wedge deeper between the two socialist giants. In 1972, Nixon went to China and he met with Mao Zedong and Zhou lai Even though the US accepted the PRC's membership into the United Nations, it still pushed for two China. And it wasn't until 1979 under president carter that the us officially recognized the prc as the sole legitimate government of china officially 1979 marked the end of the two china policy for the united states it must be noted that among the western countries the us were the last to recognize the prc except for ireland and portugal Under President de Gaulle, France was the first Western country to recognize the PRC in 1964. All right, and then we just have a brief video from CGTN on the
0: One China principle and the Taiwan question.
13: Taiwan was an undisputed part of Chinese territory until the year 1895, when Japan seized the island through war. In December 1943, China, the United States, and Britain issued the Cairo Declaration saying that Japan must return all the territories it had stolen, including northeast China, Taiwan, and the Penghu Archipelago. They reaffirmed that demand in the Potsdam Proclamation in July 1945. On October 1, 1949, the People's Republic of China was founded. The Kuomintang retreated from the mainland to entrench in Taiwan in confrontation with the central government, with the support of foreign forces. On January 5, 1950, U.S. President Truman issued a statement saying that the U.S. and other allied countries recognized China's exercise of sovereignty over Taiwan Island in the four years since 1945. However, after the start of the Korean War in June 1950 to isolate and contain China, the U.S. government sent troops to occupy Taiwan and claimed that the status of Taiwan has yet to be determined and later lobbied for dual recognition by the international community of two Chinas. In October 1971, the United Nations General Assembly passed Resolution 2758 which restored the seat and all the lawful rights of the government of the PRC in the United Nations. In September 1972, China and Japan signed a joint statement announcing establishment of diplomatic relations. Japan recognized the government of the PRC as the only legitimate government of China. In December 1978, China and the U.S. issued the Joint Communique on the Establishment of Diplomatic Relations, which said the U.S. recognizes the government of the People's Republic of China as the sole legal government of China, and acknowledges the Chinese position that there is but one China, and Taiwan is a part of China. 181 countries have now established diplomatic relations with the PRC. All of them acknowledged the one China principle and promised to handle the relations with Taiwan within the one China framework.
14: I want
3: to remind everybody that yesterday or this morning, the country of Honduras in South America established diplomatic relations with Beijing as the sole legitimate representative of China and broke off diplomatic relations with Taiwan as of today.
1: I want to add, comrade, that there's only three countries, major countries, that is, that recognize Taiwan. And believe it or not, it's Guatemala, Haiti, and Paraguay. That's it. The other ones are very, very small islands all over the world, but not many.
0: All right. Thank you. And thank you, comrade General Secretary, for that news.
1: Yeah, I
4: just want to also mention that, I guess, to capitalists, I won't name countries, but to the capitalists, This is all a game, because as much as the CIA hates communism and all that jazz, they did send, I forget the name, they sent an officer to help and see what's going on with Mao Zedong during the uh, Civil War, and he was found to be more uh, reliable than Chiang Kai-shek. So I just want to let you know that the CIA will use use anybody. All this anti-communist shit is just a rhetoric. That's it. Thank you.
0: All right. Thank you, comrade. Uh, I had a question real quick, which is, so I know that the you know, decade of the 1970s when it comes to China is a complicated one. And so obviously, you know, the United States recognizing China as the sole uh, legitimate government and going to the one China policy was a good thing. But can we say that China was playing also somewhat of a reactionary role at that time when it came to attacking Vietnam,
1: the Sino-Soviet split, etc. in the world? Yeah, it's very true, comrade. Definitely, China was kind of talking on both sides of the mouth, too, you know. And the US. it was smarter it was using that, so it's very true. It all changed, you know later on, though.:
3: Yeah, they played a very reactionary role. They changed their analysis. The main threat to the planet Earth was Soviet social imperialism. They made that term up not the United States imperialism. So their main threat now was the Soviet Union. Could you believe that? And they did all that, by the way, under the guise of being pro-Stalin. That was the reason why they originally broke, remember, because of Khrushchev's speech attacking Stalin. So they did it under the guise that they were defending Stalin, the, the Chinese. However, dialectics show that they were really attacking Lenin. Because by attacking the Soviet Union as an existing country, they were attacking Lenin. Let's be honest. That's what they were doing. There's a term for that. I think it goes like this. Right in something, but in essence, they were reactionary. Does anybody remember that quote?
0: Left in form, right in essence?
3: Correct. That's it. Left in form, but right in essence. Thank you. All
0: right. Thank you. And and I just asked that question because... It's a very complicated and confusing time to me. I know that there's a lot of you know, people from that area that don't like to touch the issue of China and Vietnam. I just think it's one of those questions that we should ask. And we should definitely defend the legacy of the People's Republic of China and defend the People's Republic of China today. There's just always nuance with this, and I think we have to look at it dialectically.
11: So this is directly on the the Department of State's website on uh, US relations with Taiwan. The United States approach to Taiwan has remained consistent across decades and administrations. The United States has a long standing one China policy which is guided by the Taiwan Relations Act. The three US-China joint communiques and the six assurances. We oppose any unilateral changes to the status quo from either side. We do not support Taiwan independence, and we expect cross-strait differences to be resolved by peaceful means. So, I, I, I just wanted to say this is a, you know, an example of uh, them saying one thing while doing completely opposite in action. Thank you.
0: All right. Thank you, comrade.
12: Yeah, it was mentioned that the uh, Sino-Soviet split was one of the main reasons the U.S. normalized with China in the early 70s. And I also noticed in 1971, um, the U.N. replaced the ROC with the PRC. Is that basically for the same reason, because of the split, or was there a different factor?
1: You know, I'm not really sure. The the first thing, yes, the U.S. uh, exploited the Sino-Soviet split, you know, to to divide them even more, right? But uh, the United Nations, I think because it was so absurd that uh, 99.99% of the population and the land was not recognized, you know, that's nonsense. 8 million versus 550 million, you know, in 71, it was way more than that too.
0: All right, thank you, comrade.
5: On that slide there that it was talking about, you know, US-China relations, there's that famous picture of Richard Nixon shaking hands with Mao. And there's a statue of that in California at the Nixon Library. It's a bronze full-size statue of Chairman Mao and President Nixon shaking hands just like that. Uh, I thought that was interesting, you know, let people know about that. It's in Norwalk, California. Thank you,
0: comrade. And that reminds me too, there's also the picture of Mao with Henry Kissinger, and I want to remind uh, comrades that Henry Kissinger's living corpse is still walking around. Um, Well, maybe not walking around, but he's still alive. Unfortunately, he's getting all this praise from bourgeois media recently as he's you know approaching his sunset on life, and so it's just it's just kind of disgusting how this war criminal could have done all these things in his life to Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, and obviously you know that part with China had what somewhat of a progressive role to play in terms of China-US relations. But I just wanted to remind people about that with Kissinger. So I would expect that this year, next year, he's probably
7: going to pass away, but he's still around. Attacking meaningless and, uh, quite frankly, corrupt party bureaucracy is a good thing. This is Stalin's legacy. Uh, this is not a reactionary thing. Granted, it's rather dialectical and they did play reactionary roles in other scapes, but cannot deny this. Uh, 9 out of 10 proletariat in American, if you told them that, if you gave them the red book they were able to wave that at their corrupt local politicians, uh, they would be ecstatic. Right? So, uh, you know, read me out for that all you want. But uh, to me, this is great. And honestly, crucified revisionism is terrible. So if we can elaborate on this, I mean, to my knowledge, at the end of Mao's life, he struggled with a question that basically was, what's the difference in essence between us in the United States between the Soviet Union and the United States.
1: It is very true that it started, uh, the rift started after 1956 and the 20th Congress, right? And Khrushchev's speech, so-called um, secret speech. It started then, but what really pushed it forward was the problem between China and India that happened in 59 and then in 62. And then the USSR uh, was on the side of India. The Chinese felt very uh, humiliated by that. And that, that really pushed it forward. It, it started with ideologically, but then it became more of a you know, nationalist, if I can say that uh, question.
3: Yeah, the whole issue of the Sino-Soviet split has to be put in a separate class a separate discussion and the ramifications that it had. It wasn't just one ramification. And remember, if they were so pro-Stalin, why did they sit down and kiss on the lips Pinochet? That's what they did. Like the Italian mafia, they kissed Pinochet and they accepted him. Pinochet was the fascist butcher, who killed communists in Chile. So remember that. How honest could they have been? Thank you.
1: I wanted to add that you're very right about the red book. There's nothing wrong with the red book. If you read it, everybody, all of us gonna agree with it, it's all good. You know, it was written actually before Mao became a little crazy, you know, in the head. All right,
0: thank you for that comrades. It's always good to have different takes in the class, I think helps us to develop our understanding of this. So thank you.
4: Yes, Comrade. So I wanted to touch on the one woman because what I'm, and I've been doing research on her, on on the side and her kind of, the only, it's true that the ones who have majority say and direction of where the current ROC is going, meaning the nationalist government for Taiwan. But the issue here is that she is like very much Jane like Wynne. a, yeah, well, what she is essentially is a version, a female Chinese imperialist capitalist version of Zelensky in Ukraine. And what her, what she says, but then also the other stuff I've been finding out through reliable sources, which I'm not going to disclose. She is a version of Zelensky is what she is. And Zelensky didn't take long by the time Zelensky got in there, he gained full sway. Now, depending on if something else happens the next like couple months here, we can see the same, a same reverse but mirror reflection scenario happen in Taipei for what happened in Kiev. This is the issue here. Just because a few individuals that, have, that are seniors that have been there longer than her hold this way, that doesn't mean it's going to last long. So this is the issue here.
1: But that seconds. and
4: that it can turn dangerous quickly. And I think we're not We need to emphasize on how another class of the comparisons to how Zelensky and Wen are like almost clones of each other and how dangerous this is and that the U.S. says it supports the PRC one China policy. But really, they are arming Wen the same way that they were arming Kiev and then now are arming and politically backing Zelensky. Two minutes. It's going to be a repeat. Thanks. That's serious.
1: I'm glad you say all this, comrade, because it's so true. And you know that lady you talk about at saying uh, when there's one thing she's been doing for the last uh, few years or so. They're doing a cultural, as uh, they call it, de What they're doing is they're removing the Chinese culture from Taiwan and saying, you know, just like Zelensky is doing in, in Ukraine, Anything Russian is not legal. The language, the culture, the history, all of that stuff, he, he, he banned it, right? She's starting to do this. Anything Chinese is, is not okay. Taiwan is not Chinese. The language even and uh, the culture. So she's doing the same process. Really, Taiwan is Chinese for Ukraine. You're 100% right.
0: Thank you, comrade. I'm glad that you said that. That's one of the big things that you said that I think is entirely right. Uh, Taiwan is Chinese for Ukraine. That's why we did this class with the name American Imperialism Second Front. Today, Russia, tomorrow, China. Because this is forming, uh, you know, shaping up to be how the theaters of the next world war uh, might take place. So thank you for that.
15: Yeah, uh, so I just kind of want to bounce off a little bit what, Uh, Some of the other comrades are talking about the current situation in Taiwan. It's important to remember the KMT's role in the recent years has definitely changed. And that is reflected in Taiwan's recent elections. Their current government, which is run by the Democratic Progressive Party, they're the pro-independence liberal party. They didn't do too well in the last local elections. And there's a chance that the next general elections, which I think are going to be next year, that we could see the KMT back in government versus the DPP. So this is something we need to pay attention to. Um, This could be a situation like in Ukraine, where we have the party of regions representing Ukraine, trying to have friendly relations with Russia and develop along those lines versus the other various pro-European parties over there as well. Thank you.
1: Yes, comrade, you're 100% right. And you know, this is a chance to prevent a major war, maybe to prevent World War III, is if inside Taiwan, like the people that want a peaceful reunification, which is pretty much a booming town, if they are able to take over, it will prevent a war, okay? Because Xi Jinping has said it just like very recently, he said, reunification is inevitable. It's just a matter of how, peaceful or not, and when. So our chance is inside Taiwan. Otherwise, we're going to have a war like in Ukraine.
0: Thank you, comrade. And I just want to add too that we did a narration at the People's School of an article from the Chushi Journal of the Communist Party of China talking about the national reunification across the Taiwan Strait and how they wanted it to be a peaceful reunification. And we just posted that back up on our uh people's school YouTube, so if you're interested in listening listening to what they had to say, uh you can go find that and share it around, especially as we get ready to see different events take place in terms of you know current events
6: um yeah, this is kind of off topic now, but um, I know we were talking earlier about the relationship between the peasants and the workers, and I just want to recommend the book um Wretched of the Earth by Franz Fanon. All right. Thank you,
0: comrade.
14: So it was mentioned that comrade Stalin or the USSR was tricked by the UN. um, But it also seemed like uh, maybe Stalin didn't do a good move by boycotting the UN. Um, Was was the USSR like expelled from the UN after that point? Or how that like how were they really tricked then? Can we get a little more context about that?
1: Okay, so, you know, uh, Stalin decided to boycott for good reasons. I would have to, anybody would have, right, if, you know, in his shoes. Okay, uh, but then came, you know, the Korean War, and it was not, I mean, the USSR was not participating to, to the uh, UN Security Council. So they voted in the absence of the USSR, okay? So, yeah, it was a trick, I would say, because they knew they were not there. If they had been there, they would have blocked it. So yeah, but you know, they came back later, but it was too late. All right. I hope that
0: answered your question, Comrade.
7: Yeah. Um, so I know earlier, Comrade, you mentioned that that as soon as if Taiwan declares independence, the PLA will go in, thus, you know, starting the war. Um, so um, I guess my question is is like, what are the possibilities? Is it something that could very potentially happen? soon from your perspective? Is it something that is kind of being de-escalated? I know Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan, just like went there. And then I think that she spoke about it at the Congress, but I I don't know. So sorry, if you could answer.
1: Comrade, honestly, um, I I believe that the Taiwan people uh, really wouldn't want this to happen. Uh, As a matter of fact, there's a strong opposition, you know, which is led by the Kuomintang, okay, like we said earlier, okay. Um, But you know what, Uh, the United States is pushing them that way without saying it. You know, at one time in this uh, presentation, you're going to see a video of Joe Biden. And he's going to say, well, independence, it's up to them. In other words, he's kind of pushing them too, because he should say, no, no way, no how. China has told you that independence is a mother of all red line, okay? So you cannot, it's kind of like Ukraine going into NATO. Putin warned them in 2008, do not do that. They gave him a chance not to do it. But the U.S. really said, they can if they want. And sure enough, it began the war. That's what I think gonna happen. But hopefully the Taiwan people will be strong enough with the KMT to block that stuff, you know, that's all.
0: Yeah, and I just want to add to that as well. You know, we did a narration of an article that was put in the Chushi Journal uh, publication of uh, the CPC, Communist Party of China, that talked about the national reunification across the Taiwan Strait. And basically in it, they say, look, the most ideal thing, the the thing that we're searching for is peaceful reunification. It's what they've been trying to set this up for ever since uh, the uh kmt went to taiwan it's what they ideally wanted before the third uh chinese revolutionary civil war happened um but similar to the situation with nato expansion in ukraine even somewhat similar to the bolshevik revolution and the kerensky government there could come a point where peaceful reunification isn't an option anymore and that's what the united states is trying to do because they're trying to use this as a launching uh board a springboard for war with China. And so, but I would definitely recommend that you um, go and, and find the narration that we have on our YouTube channel of that article. Uh, Comrade General Secretary, you have the floor?
3: Yeah, again, a question that everybody has to think in their mind. A truth is not always a truth. It depends on the context and the reality, the new reality. To call for self-determination this is a very interesting comment I'm going to be making. Has been viewed in the left, especially the Leninist left, by sections of the Leninist left, is an automatic always given. I think that has to be reevaluated correctly. It depends on the situation. If people vote to be a fascist government and a fascist state, and oppress other ethnic groups. Do we as communists support that? Think about that. Liberals would support that because liberals seem to talk about things in a constant without looking at the context or the new realities that are around. If you get what I'm trying to say between the lines. So self-determination for Taiwan and being used as a US base in that part of the world is not a positive thing that Leninists should support. I think we have to be clear on that. Let's not be dogmatic and say on page 77 in 1901, Comrade Lenin said this, 1901 is not 2023. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Comrade.
3: Yeah, so If at any point
0: in time I'm skipping ahead to something that we're going to mention later in the class,
3: then feel free to stop me. But um, in a nutshell, what is our position on China as a world power? Because we do consider,
0: especially after the Sino-Soviet split, that they started to stray from the path of socialism and we don't recognize market socialism as a path to socialism, to my understanding. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but on the other end of it, obviously we don't support any sort of U.S. imperialism
3: in the area or any sort of overthrow of Xi Jinping or anything of that sort. So... Yeah, our position has always been clear. And always been clear. That is, we support the people of China in their war against US imperialism, That has always been our position. And because we may have a difference of agreement on what type of socialism they have, doesn't mean that we automatically support US imperialism. We don't, even though we're Americans and we live here. We don't support the policies of the capitalist government, which are imperialists. So I think it's clear. I think our position in this party is actually the most realistic and the most dialectic. Others tend to be automatically following a country, even if they may be doing something wrong. And I think historically, that may not be the best thing for communism. But on this issue of China, if you could understand what I'm saying, there is no ifs, ands, or buts. We support China against U.S. imperialist intrigues.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And and I want to add to that that uh, there's also a dialectic relationship there, is the more the U.S. is opposing China, the more U.S. imperialism is encircling China, and the more the Communist Party of China is making a left turn, So we got market socialism, but the more it's going to happen that way is the more socialism we're going to have and the less market. That's my opinion. All right. Thank you, comrade.
7: Two things. If the proxy war in Ukraine doesn't murder our economy, proxy war in Taiwan absolutely would murder us. Uh, We would not survive it. Our entire economy would crash. Energy prices would continue to inflate. Uh, luxury commodities will continue to inflate and this is what our economy is predicated on. This is one of the successes of America is our ability to allocate luxury commodities. And honest to God, uh, we call it market socialism. I call it the successful adaptation to the information age. You cannot run a command economy on paper anymore. You cannot run an economy on an overbloated bureaucracy. So if we want to just keep coping about uh, these formalisms and these appearances that don't strictly adhere to uh, our personal uh, uh, understandings of how the Soviet Union worked, Uh, we're never going to get to the essential and intrinsic quality of what makes something socialist. And the cold truth is the contents of the people state in China is largely proletariat. So we can continue to do these copes about uh, the form and appearance, uh, but uh, really go back to Hegel. An appearance is a contradiction of essence in form. All
14: right. Thank you, comrade. Yes, I want to point out that socialism in the information age does not need to take on market socialist characteristics. Uh, Look up Paul Cockshot, automation of planning. But that being said, I I certainly support China against U.S. imperialism. Thank you, comrade.
2: I think uh, this is a very uh, complicated topic, as uh, Comrade Angelo indicated, because uh, the Chinese foreign policy, after uh, the takeover of the Communist Party by the Mao Zedong uh, wing, in my understanding of uh, Marxism or what it should have been in China, I think it was an uh, ultra-leftist movement. That is why China was more allied to U.S. imperialism. Than uh, the former Soviet Union, and uh, the Communist Party of China under Mao Zedong had gone to the extreme of starting a border war, is a disastrous uh, uh, border war with Russia. That was that was very very bad. I mean, it didn't look, you say know, international communist uh, uh, countries fighting each other. It did not make uh, sense philosophically and tactically, and also. The Communist Party of China was uh, playing very, very destructive roles in Africa with uh, respect to Angola, Mozambique, because they were supporting the CIA wings uh, in those liberation movements. So I think it was very disruptive. But uh, in spite of that, that finally Russia and China are coordinating internationally against Western hegemony. Laid by the United States, I think that is a positive result after so many tactical errors, strategic errors committed by the Communist Party of China. That is my uh, uh, analysis. That is my uh, my observation. All
0: right, thank you, Comrade. And before we go to the third section, I also just wanted to say, you know, I think that even just besides supporting China against U.S. imperialism, and I mean also in the regards of its the biggest bulwark out there against U.S. imperialism, I'd say, in in some respects, even more than than Russia, because it has more uh, capabilities than Russia does. Um, but also, just as still a part of you know our communist legacy, it's not the most ideal one. It's not one that we've always agreed with, but it is definitely preferable to still having the Republic of China or having some sort of Westernized. Uh, completely, uh, you know, imperialist China. uh, And those were possibilities following the Second World War. So I think that, you know, China itself, uh, the People's Republic of China is something that we support, but that doesn't mean we support all the ins and outs of it. And with that, we're going to have to jump to the third section of the class.
8: America's Pacific Pivot. The United States was mostly bogged down in the Middle East, as well as deeply involved with the interventions in Latin America, Eastern Europe, and Africa at the turn of the 21st century. Despite the United States sending most of its manufacturing to the PRC and ending up in billions of dollars in debt to China, the imperialists in the Obama administration decided in the late 2000s to begin a Pacific pivot or a strengthening of forces with relationships with allies in the Asia Pacific region to envelop China, as well as Russia, the DPRK, and more. Neoliberal Hillary Clinton wrote about the pioneering of this policy in October 2011 with a foreignpolicy.com piece entitled, America's Pacific Century, which admitted, maintaining peace and security across the Asia Pacific is increasingly crucial to global progress, whether through defending freedom of navigation in the South China Sea, countering the nuclear proliferation efforts of North Korea, or ensuring transparency in the military activities of the region's key players.
0: All right, and then we have two brief videos from the untold history of the U.S. talking about this Pacific pivot. Uh, And the only reason there's two videos is because there is a brief anti-China section, which
10: I cut out in november 2011 secretary of state clinton threw down the gauntlet on china writing as the war in iraq winds down and america begins to withdraw its forces from afghanistan the united states stands at a pivot point calling this america's pacific century she meant a substantially increased military involvement in the asia pacific region to contain china Beginning with the opium wars in the 19th century, China has been humiliated time and again by stronger foes, Britain, Japan, Russia. It fought the U.S. to a standoff in Korea in the early 1950s. China is a proud nation, the world's second largest economy, a hybrid. Part state-owned, part capitalist, it has replaced the U.S. as Asia's main trading partner. But in 1996, Chinese leaders were humiliated again by U.S. nuclear missile rattling during another confrontation over Taiwan. And with its economic interests and shipping lanes to protect, it set out to modernize its military. In 2012, the Pentagon estimated Chinese expenditures of $160 billion. But given the secrecy of the Chinese system, the real budget is unknowable at this time. Although it has only one foreign base, its hardline over disputed oil, gas, and mineral rich islands and territories in the East and South China Seas have escalated tensions with its regional but more ominously, China has again attracted the wrath of China bashing American hardliners whose animosity dates back to the McCarthy era. A new face-off is in the works. The US has returned to Asia, seeking new alliances, rebalancing its fleet, deploying its top stealth warplanes to bases within striking distance of China by 2017. It has strengthened military alliances with China's neighbors, particularly Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, and the Philippines, sending 2,500 marines to Australia, the first long-term troop increase in Asia since Vietnam. The Chinese were deeply angry over the Obama administration's new arms sales of some 12 billion dollars to Taiwan in 2010 and 11. They have accused the US of seeking to encircle them. The fear of the US by others cannot be underestimated. As the late conservative political scientist Samuel Huntington acknowledged in 1996.
7: The West won the war not by the superiority of its ideas, or values, or religion, but rather by its superiority in the application of organized violence. Westerners often forget this fact. Non-Westerners never do.
10: Progressive China experts fear the U.S. is once again employing Truman's 1946 playbook with the Soviet Union in an attempt to contain China. The same situation exists once again with Western revulsion for China's internal policies. But this time, holding $1 trillion in U.S. Treasury bonds, the Chinese could imperil the U.S. economy in ways the Soviets never...
14: Present situation. 2009 to 2017. Relations under Obama administration. The sales of weapons to Taiwan and a meeting between the Dalai Lama and Obama angered the PRC, but they continued to try working diplomatically with the Obama administration and compromised on a few issues such as putting sanctions on the DPRK. Another point, while the Obama administration continued to carry out the Pacific pivot, the militarily and economically billed U.S. presence in the Asia Pacific region, it still stuck to the one China policy and Obama met with Xi Jinping in 2013, in one of the most important summits between an American and Chinese leader since Nixon. In 2015, the United States warned China to halt any further militarization in the South China Sea after US reconnaissance, allegedly found evidence of military buildup on the islands built by China's land reclamation project. 2017, 2021, relations under Trump administration. Trump's administration saw more hawkish and reckless actions against China. First, by speaking with Ying Wang, the then leader of Taiwan, as president-elect before ever speaking with Xi Jinping and then questioning the One China policy. Trump later reassured the PRC about his support for the One China policy. But as his administration went on, then these points are listed, Chinese businessmen were arrested in the United States, Huawei executives, for example, Chinese-made drones were removed from service in the U.S. $1.8 million were given to Taiwan in military aid. A massive media campaign in support of Hong Kong protests occurred. Lies about a Uyghur genocide were spread. Military drills near China and People's Korea were continued. The coronavirus pandemic gave way for more manufacturing consent against China, as claims about a Chinese lab leak were spread by Western media in the PRC, was blamed for the worldwide pandemic. All right, 2021 to present relations under the Biden administration. The Biden administration has seen the most reckless actions towards China of the United States so far. The People's Republic of China and the United States have had more incidents with each other military by ever before and since the start of the Russia-Ukrainian war. U.S. officials have been much bolder about threats of war with China, even threatening a third world war. In July, 2022, Nancy Pelosi went and met with Ying wen in Taiwan, which was condemned by China and even unpopular among the island residents. As a result, China severed all engagement with activities that were being worked on with the United States. Since China has attempted encircling Taiwan in drills and the United States has sent the Pacific Fleet in between the island and mainland multiple times. Other major incidents include... The February 2023 shootdown of a Chinese weather balloon called the Chinese spy balloon by a US F 22 Raptor after it flew across the continental United States. More recently, US and Chinese naval ships nearly collided in the South China Sea as tensions escalated.
0: Now we've got a video about Biden stating US troops would be deployed to Taiwan in case of a Chinese invasion.
10: What should Chinese President Xi know about your commitment to Taiwan?
2: We agree with what we signed on to a long time ago, and that there's a one-China policy, and that Taiwan makes their own judgments about their independence. We are not moving, we're not encouraging them being independent. We're not, let that's their decision.
10: But would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes, if, in fact, there was an unprecedented attack. After our interview, a White House official told us U.S. policy has not changed. Officially, the U.S. will not say whether American forces would defend Taiwan. But the commander-in-chief had a view of his own. So, unlike Ukraine, to be clear, sir, U.S. forces, U.S. men and women, would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion? Yes. Yes.
0: And then we have the other big omission in the last year, which is when the U.S. Air Force General warned of a war with China in 2025.
10: So uh,
8: let's start by looking at some of that memo from the general right now. He says, quote, I hope I am wrong. My gut tells me we will fight in 2025. Xi secured his third term and set his war council in October of 2022. Taiwan's presidential elections are in 2024 and will offer Xi a reason. And United States presidential elections are in 2024 and will offer Xi a distracted America. Xi's team, reason, and opportunity are all aligned for 2025.
7: Present situation, what can happen from here? The United States and the People's Republic of China are the closest to war that they've been since the Korean War. The United States is being more provocative than ever before in the Asian Pacific region. Diplomatic relations are falling through, and regional adversaries of China, such as Japan and South Korea, are militarizing themselves like never before as well. The United States and the People's Republic of China could go to war any day at this point with all this escalation, but peaceful reunification with Taiwan and the cooling of relations with the United States is also just as likely. The latter most ideal. China also owns over one trillion dollars of the United States debt that it could call in, which could wreck the U.S. economy like never before. And this could be enough to make the United States hesitant to act militarily. The United States would also undoubtedly end up in more debt if it fought a war on two fronts, against Russia and Ukraine and China and the Pacific. We must stand with the PRC against American imperialism at all costs and strive for a peaceful solution to end this crisis. Stop World War III, stop NATO, end the sanctions and the drills,
5: stand with China, based. All
0: right. Thank you, comrade. And now we'll stop for our uh, final round of questions and comments.
5: Yeah, I just wanted to start off with the quote from Fidel Castro, um, which he said, Xi Jinping is the greatest revolutionary leader of this era. And I bring this up because, you know, China is not naive. China is a civilization that has been around for thousands of years, not the PRC specifically, but just China China as more or less a a landmass such as like that. But... I don't know if many of you saw the videos from last year of them firing missiles over Taiwan. It was a show force and it was absolutely necessary. You know, something of this scale, Taiwan is definitely playing with fire. They've been playing with fire for quite some time. And, you know, it has to be clear to all of us here that China is not naive. You know, we may disagree with them on different ideological fronts, but at the end of the day, their enemy is U.S. imperialism. Same as us. That's all. All right. Thank you, comrade.
8: Just out of curiosity, could someone give more information about the propaganda, about the genocide of the Uyghurs, I think they're called, in China? Like, what's the reality of the situation and how is it being portrayed?
5: Okay, so this is something that's been pushed by, like, a lot of Western NGOs specifically out of Australia, and uh, there's a German evangelical Christian who believes that his mission is to Christianize China. So he started putting this stuff out without without any evidence, you know, but this was picked up by several media outlets and pushed. You know, there's that region, Xinjiang, is very significant in the Belt and Road Initiative of China as it connects all throughout Central Asia, You know, that's why the United States has been funding the ETIM, East Turkestan Independence Movement, which is a known terrorist group in China. They did do terrorist acts against the civilian population there. So China reacted in a way which no other country, let me clarify, no other country reacted this way in terms of de-radicalizing people. The Arab League, which represents all of basically the Arab world, sent their representatives to Xinjiang to see the conditions in which these re-education centers were, you know, uh, taking place and everything like this. They all approved of it. You know, every single one of them. Just wanted to throw that out. I, I know other people have more to say on it, but that's just a starting point.
0: Yeah. And I'll, I'll just say that, you know, historically, this has been a thing of Western imperialists lying about different uh, socialists or socialist-adjacent nations and the, the different supposed genocides or massacres that they did. Um, it brings to mind the Katyn Forest Massacre in Poland in World War II, where German soldiers supposedly just found these Polish people dead with German ammunition in them. It also reminds me of the Paula de myths.
6: Okay, so Xinjiang... Uh, more simply put, the reason why they had the uh, uh, de-radicalization campaign occur over there, the reality of it is, is that Xinjiang historically has been a very poor region of uh, China, even when it had its short uh, term in- uh, as an independent country during the uh, Roy period, during the 1900s. And more or less, what happens is when you have a population that is primarily poor, primarily nomadic, and primarily, uh, you know, suffering the consequences of American-sponsored Wahhabi t- uh, terrorism, which that's what's been going on over there, is that the Wahhabis have been spreading their uh, virulent ideology over there, and the poor people over there, you know, not seeing an alternative out of, you know, being poor, not having opportunities, chose that path. The Chinese uh, Communist Party chose to go into Xinjiang, not just de-radicalize them, but also start building up infrastructure, jobs, and basically giving the people over there an actual material opportunity to not just de-radicalize, but also integrate uh, more properly into a a greater society by giving them job opportunities, preferred ethical, uh, you know, non-discrimination stuff, and basically making sure that not only can they de-radicalize, but also Uh, proletarianized as a people and more or less that's a more or less that simply put something that the americans can't tolerate because it is a prime resource zone and it's also right next to the uh, strategic regions in central asia which is where we've been sponsoring terrorism with our special forces as well all right thank you comrade
8: more follow-up on the Xinjiang stuff this was a separatist group that we have been backing for quite a long time Many of these Uyghur terrorists are currently fighting along with al-Nusra and other radicalized Islamic terrorists in Syria right now. This this has been something that we have backed. I believe, I, I can't remember the general's name, but I remember seeing a video of him saying, hey, if you want to screw with China, all you got to do is fund some separatist terrorists, the Uyghurs. It's right there on the border. It's a very porous border between Afghanistan and China. It has been... The separatist movement has been funded totally by the United States and our black operations.
0: Thank you, comrade. And I also got something in the chat said to just mention that there are several Islamic ethnic groups in China, not just Uyghurs. So if it was an Islamic genocide, it would be you know all over the country. And I also just wanted to briefly add there was, of course, in our you know history with the Soviet Union, the American imperialists propped up the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And this is very similar. And one of the things is, of course, that bit us in the ass way later on 9-11. This could bite us in the ass, too.
7: Two quick things. There are more mosques in Zhejiang than there is in the entirety of the United States. Uh, The Uyghurs' Muslim religiosity is very important, and this is being handled and uh, acutely attended to by the CCP. They are not being genocided. These initial claims come from the Associated Press, who have sent three journalists over since their first initial claim. I forget when it happened. Uh, All three have not come back with any corroborating evidence. There have been population increases in the Uyghur population. These people are now being uh, put into actual schools that they build. Uh, They're being uh, given decency and a novel human life. And then the second thing that I wanted to cover was Uh, Xi Jinping recently passed a policy that removed all mentions of Mao, Lenin, Stalin, the Marxism, Leninism from their uh, uh, policy. And, uh, you know, many of us might go, oh, my formalism, oh, my formal ideology. But uh, they're doing this because many of these corrupt politicians on the local levels go, well, I don't need to listen to Xi. I'm a Stalinist. Oh, well, I don't need to listen to the central authority. I'm a Leninist, et cetera, et cetera. So really this is the most socialist thing they've done in a while. All
0: right. Thank you, comrade. I I also wanted to just say real quick on the Hong Kong, you know, issue. One of the things that I've noticed besides the United States utilizing this whole, you know, supposed crisis over basically the, the supposed lack of democracy when it comes to Hong Kong, the ultra left has picked up on a lot of protest tactics that have happened on the streets of Hong Kong. And so it's very weird to see, this this movement in hong kong which is objectively it, something that aids u.s imperialism um, being put picked up by ultra leftists but honestly it's not a rare occurrence it seems to happen all the time
9: just on that note for ultra left and the hong kong protests I actually used to be in a trotskyist group but the reason i left was because they came out in full support of those protests and i was more thinking like wait a minute this looks very similar to what happened in Ukraine in 2014. What's going on here? Haven't looked back since then. Another thing I just wanted to bring up was, um, I believe it. there was a recent quote, I'm trying to remember where I found it, but like 94% of all Tibetans can read and write Tibetan their own language. And... There's so much claims about like the Tibetans are being displaced or they're enslaved by the PRC. How many Native Americans know their own language this day in the US as a comparison? Thank you.
2: Uh, I think uh, no matter what the policies uh, may be pursued by the transatlantic countries, there is a tremendous recession in Europe and North America, the unemployment rate, It is not uh, the right figure, uh, as experienced by the working class. And uh, the other danger is that the global situation now, we are going back to the Cold War. And there is more militarization of Asia, including uh, African countries. And Russia is on the rise militarily. China, North Korea. So I think the United States has uh, lost the strategy of uh, disarmament or uh, detente, you know, the strategic uh, treaty uh, start uh, has been uh, rejected or uh, abandoned by Russia. So I think the, the future is not uh, very bright for North America because the economy is very bad. And those countries are rising nations, and uh, they are very militant, and they are also getting armed. Iran itself has uh, successfully tried, tested uh hypersonic weapons becoming like a regional uh, power and they have been reconciled with saudi arabia to make a rival with Chinese diplomacy so i think the future is not very very uh, bright even for the ruling classes of this country and the so called military industrial complex they cannot go go to to, to to go to war with china because it will be disastrous. There will not be Taiwan on the, ma- on the map because they are going to use nuclear weapons. So what do they mean by uh, Joe Biden mean by going to war to defend Taiwan? How is he going to defend it?
1: I can add, you know, earlier we said about the party of uh, Tsing um, Wen. Okay, it's a um, Democratic Progressive Party, DPP. OK, and what, what's very, very important is that she represents the push for independence and the Kuomintang represents the push for reunification. She's in power since 2016. OK, and she's doing everything she can. And the U.S. should stop her. Because we'll be on the brink of World War Three if, if she succeeds, And the Kuomintang can actually save the whole situation, okay? Can save us from World War III. That's all, comrade. All
0: right. Thank
7: you, comrade. Uh, I think that that was a good uh, response. I would just like to make note that China just struck a deal with Cuba to build a military base in Cuba. Eerie stuff in history. It's like it repeats or something. And then the second thing I wanted to say is uh, we need to ask ourselves, what is commodity form? And what is the commodity form in China? Uh, recently, they just uh, reduced the price of uh, caviar. You know, you go to a five, a two-star Michelin restaurant here, you could spend thousands of dollars on a plate of uh, 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 jellyfish or something that has no taste and some fish eggs. And, you know, this isn't uh, uh, for social ends. This isn't for common ends. This is for the profit of whatever business owner owns the two-star Michelin. But in China, they've reduced the price of this luxury commodity, so great using cybernetic uh, negative feedback loops uh, to a point where it is now common. It's a common uh, 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 eatery. It's a common food in China, right? So really, the question we must ask ourselves is, what is the consistency of the ruling classes of the state apparatus? And what is the commodity form in China? These are the essential questions we must ask. We must not ask, does it look exactly like my perfect ideal form? Does it look exactly like this rationalization some European wrote about in a book? No. We must ask what is happening in material reality, what is the commodity form in material reality, and what is the content of the ruling class in China? And if you answer those questions correctly, you'll come with the the correct uh, conclusion that China is a socialist state.
0: All right. Thank you, comrade.
14: Hi, thank you again. I'm new here, so forgive me if this is a silly question. But I, I'm referencing the last slide that we looked at, which had a call to support the PRC against U.S. imperialism. And my question is, what about the science of, or the the theory of scientific communism as formulated by Marx? towards the end of establishing an international dictatorship of the poor and working class requires that we support a state entity like the PRC. Isn't it just in the interest of the poor and working class of the world that we oppose U.S. imperialism?
0: Uh, yes. Yes, it is in the interests of the working class of the world that we oppose U.S. imperialism because that is the force that threatens um, you know, not only um, nuclear Holocaust, but uh, fascist Holocaust again, climate Holocaust. Um, this is the force that has been the greatest threat to life on the planet Earth. And I think that it does call for us to support something like China. We all it's not just limited to China as you know, whether we consider it a socialist state or not, but I think it uh, means supporting the other anti-western imperialist countries in the world like the Russian Federation, like the People's Republic of China, the Islamic Republic of Iran, Republic of Cuba, etc. Because, you know, when you take it down to the era that we're actually in, it is the United States trying to achieve full spectrum dominance over the planet so that it has undisputed rule and can go ahead and rape all the resources from all of the corners of the planet and Uh, that is, that would be the worst manifestation of capitalism we could ever see. Not to mention the fact that we're on the brink of fascism. Comrade General Secretary, you have the floor.
3: Yeah, I want to mention that for 50, 60, 70 years, we were able to sleep at night without a nuclear conflagration. Why? Because we had a world that was multipolar. Very important. Multipolar, by having a multipolar world, each one was afraid to use the big nuclear war. That's what happened, that's not my view, that's exactly what happened in history. If we go to a unipolar world, which is what we have now with the United States, we're not safer, we're more liable to have some kind of nuclear configuration. So forget about Lenin writing that imperialism he wrote a book on this, is the highest stage of what? Of capitalism. That's not me saying it. That's somebody who actually carried through a revolution, successful revolution saying it. So even if he didn't say it, our job is to prevent a nuclear conflagration. That really has to be our job. And if it means opposing US imperialism, then so be it. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to thank everybody for coming. And um, this is a place where we come and can sit and discuss things in a commonly way without attacking each other and calling each other all kinds of names from this to that. Um, and I think it's needed in the left. We need to have a place to come to where we can feel comfortable, let that our hair, say what we wanna say and not fear that we're gonna be attacked verbally. And that seems to be the big thing on the internet today. If you disagree with somebody, you'll rip out their heart. It's amazing. So I wanted to just mention that. Uh, The lawyer thing is important. It costs money to defend yourself in the capitalist United States. It's not for free. And if you don't have money, you're going to be ripped through the mud. You're going to be robbed from the left to the right. And so we had to fight back. And it costs us money dear money that we don't even have so we go to the people who come to the school who appreciate the work we're doing here and uh if they can get on record as supporting us it'll be helpful not only to us but to the new people also please get on now go on to the website and uh if you can give one two three four dollars that'll be great uh and say it's for the legal for the lawyers And that's all. Thank you.